forward. Isaiah 29, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 29, and we'll be looking at the first four verses to get going, and then we'll be looking at the whole chapter. Uh, Lord willing, we'll get through the whole chapter tonight. If not, uh, we'll spread it across two weeks. We'll see how it goes. We're going to look at what some think is a Disney princess, but is not. Amen? Look at the third word in Isaiah 29. We find Ariel. What does that mean? Brother Joe told me before church tonight, he said, uh, I've heard you preach against a lot of things, but if you're going to preach against Disney princesses, I'm out. Um, I didn't know he loved Disney princesses so much. So, uh, No, but let's read the first four verses, and then we'll get in and explain what all this means. Verse 1, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices, and I will distress Ariel. And there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And I will camp against thee round about, and will lay siege against thee with the mountain. And I will raise forts against thee, and thou shalt be brought down, and shall speak out of the ground. And thy speech shall be low out of the dust, and thy Voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. The title of the Bible study here is Jerusalem Rebuked, Jerusalem Restored. Now, this is spanning several thousand years, this idea of being rebuked and restored, and still has not been totally restored. But we're going to unpack this chapter. There's a lot of really good things here, and uh, we get into point three. There's going to be a lot of spiritual application for each of us tonight. So we're going to look to move quickly through points one and two and spend a good chunk of our time in point three. Lord willing, we'll get into that tonight. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we look at your word. And God, um, the problem Jerusalem had is the same problem that's present today. It's just sin. And uh, ignoring you and not giving you your uh, the glory due into your name, not living a life that's compliant and in line with what you want, Lord, putting, out, putting on a show on the outside while being filthy on the inside. These were uh, Israel's sins, Jerusalem's sins. They had religion and no relationship. God, help us not to fall into those same traps. Satan sets the same traps up for us in the church era as he did for the Jews here in, um, in Jerusalem several thousand years ago. And so, Lord, help us to take heed to your word and to learn from your word and help us to be challenged tonight uh, by what uh, what the scriptures have to say for us in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let's jump right in tonight. Uh, no need for uh, any sort of fancy introduction. Let's just jump right into point number one and we'll see how far we get here. We're going to begin in verse one. Notice number one, God's anger toward Judah. God's anger toward Judah. Now, the idea of being angry is found five Hundred times in the scripture, 500 times, you find the words anger, wrath, indignation, or vengeance. 500 times someone is um, performing one of those four words, uh, anger, wrath, vengeance, and indignation. 300 times, it's the Lord God uh, uh, doing it. 200 times, it's mankind doing it. Uh, the 300 times that God is angry, wrathful, uh, full of indignation or vengeance, there is a positive outcome because God knows how to handle those emotions. The 200 times that you find a human attached to those emotions, 
we either get, uh, we're either not given the result or we find it to be a negative result. God does not want us to be angry. For us to be angry, it is a sin. And I know there are a couple of verses or areas people like to run to and point to. I do a podcast on Monday mornings with a pastor friend of mine, and we just got through covering anger, and I laid out all the explanations there. I would refer you back to that. But God had every right to be angry because vengeance belongs to the Lord, and Judah had gone well across the line. Now, look with me at verse number 1 and verse number 2 again. Woe, woe. There are seven woes mentioned from chapter 28 out through chapter 33. Two of those seven woes are mentioned right here in chapter 29. Woe is one of the strongest warnings or rebukes uh, you could give. That word woe was strong language in the Hebrew. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year. Let them kill sacrifices. Yet I will distress Ariel. And there shall be heaviness and sorrow. And it shall be unto me as Ariel. Now, what does that word Ariel mean? How do we know this is talking about Israel? Well, we're given one clue in verse 1 where it says the city where David dwelt. There's no question that's talking about uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the word Ariel, the root word for Ariel is found just a handful of times in the Old Testament and it's translated, not Ariel, but it's translated to uh, two different words. Notice letter A, Ariel is an animal. Ariel is is an animal. Second Samuel chapter 23, we're not going to turn there tonight. You're encouraged to do that on your own. Uh, but Second Samuel 23 verse 20 talks about a man being Ariel or being lion-like. Lion-like. The word Ariel also in Hebrew text is translated to mean lion of God. And we know that Judah was of the tribe. Jesus was rather of the tribe of Judah. He was described as the lion of Judah. The lion of Judah. So this word Ariel means lion. Furthermore, there's deeper symbolism here. Assyria would be the one to come in and carry away the ten northern tribes and march through Judah and conquer all of it except Jerusalem. And the symbol of Assyria was a lion and so it says woe to Ariel uh, to Ariel the city where David dwelt add ye year to year let them kill sacrifices verse 2 yet I will distress Ariel uh, 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 God is saying here that the tribe of the lion of Judah uh, uh, the tribe of this lion this lion like tribe Ariel that God is going to come in and distress it because God is angry at Judah, but the word Ariel is not only translated lion of God, it is also translated letter B. Ariel is an altar. An altar. The word Ariel in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 43, verse 13, translates the same word uh, for Ariel translated as the altar of God. The altar of God. Now, I find it interesting that Isaiah loves to write in uh, duplicity. He'll write a verse and it'll have a double meaning. To it, And you find this all throughout the book of Isaiah. In fact, in my deep, deep study of the book, as we've gone through verse by verse through the book, I've seen Isaiah do this a number of times. Or he'll write something out and there's duplicity in the meaning. Uh, there's a double meaning there. And here's another example of God writing through Isaiah's hand. Duplicity, yes, Ariel is an animal. Yes, Ariel means a lion. Yes, God is calling out Judah by their title or by their... Uh, mascot, but he's not only addressing uh, them as an animal, he's talking about how God is going to turn them 
into an altar. Look with me at verse 3 and 4. Verse 3 and 4. Isaiah chapter 29. And I will camp against thee round about, and will lay siege against thee with a mount, and I will raise forts against thee. Think of the uh, picture of an altar, uh, an animal being sacrificed on an altar. Look at verse 4. And thou shalt be brought down. And shall speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall lay low out of the dust, and thy voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. It is though God is saying, I'm going to send an enemy in that's going to wipe you out in such a way that you... Corporately, Israel will be the animal that's sacrificed on top of the altar of Jerusalem. Now, here's some interesting things about this thought, all right? First of all, Jerusalem is filled with stone, with stone. There are stones everywhere, everywhere. Uh, If you ever look at a picture of Jerusalem uh, from the outskirts of town looking in, it is clear that the city has been destroyed and rebuilt many, many, many times. In fact, uh, some people will say, uh, let's go to Jerusalem and walk where Jesus walked. And I believe that's a little bit of a misnomer. Um, uh, The area where Jesus walked is probably about 500 feet below the surface of of where current day Jerusalem is. What happens is an enemy will come in and siege it, besiege it, and destroy it. And and they'll cover it with rock and build again. And then uh, Jerusalem would get uh, destroyed again and they'd cover it with rock. And if you stand on the outside of Jerusalem and you look at it, it's clear that it's been destroyed and rebuilt, destroyed and rebuilt. In fact, the temple where Solomon built is so far below the current dome of the rock that it's well underground and you'd have to do an archaeological dig to to get to it. Why? Because God, in his punishment of the Jews in their rebellion, has sent enemies in, and the Jews have suffered and died in their own city. God has allowed them to be the aerial, them to be the sacrifice on the aerial or on the altar, and they have been the one uh, to die. They have been the one uh, to go down, and uh, it's been them that God's anger has been poured out on because his rebuke. His rebuke is poured out on this uh, 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 tribe of the lion, uh, tribe of Judah. His rebuke has poured out on them and their voices have cried out from the ashes. Today I did some reading in Jeremiah. Jeremiah and Lamentations. And uh, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. In fact, I read all of Lamentations 3 and, and, and uh, uh, Judah... Or rather, Jeremiah is talking about how that uh, children are just wandering the street with nothing to eat. And mothers cannot even give their children suck because they're so malnourished. There's no milk for them to nurse their children with. And um, uh, the, the city is just a dumpster fire. And there's, there's burning uh, heaps everywhere. And, and the city's been totally leveled and destroyed. Isaiah's prophecy had come true during the lifetime of Jeremiah. The city had been, that rock, the rock that would make the altar, the the aerial, the altar, God had come in with uh, Babylon and had burned the city to the ground and the Israelites, many of them had died there and were the sacrifice. Why? God was pouring out His anger on a people who had fallen short. Now we know from studying the Bible that God is Slow, slow to anger. Slow to anger. Do you understand 
that God um, is, is quick to give you another chance and give you another chance. How many of you have experienced that God just keeps giving you another chance and another chance? Do you know that at some point God's patience and God's long-suffering can run out with a country and can run out with an individual? I've seen God's patience run out with individuals who are running from them. I've seen God take people home to heaven. and uh, My speculation uh, privately has been with uh, people I've known that they just exhausted God's patience and His anger was poured out on them. God does not just do this to people. God does this to churches. God does this to governments. God does this to homes. Institutions that God created for His uh, for his purpose. What does Romans 13 tell us about government? That it was created by God to execute justice, right? In the place of God on earth. I look at Israel, I look at America, and I believe that America, uh, while not uh, built on a perfect foundation, America in its early days was uh, established on Christian morals and Christian values, on the Judeo-Christian ethics. And boy, we have gotten a long, long, long ways from that foundation, and we are begging for the anger and the wrath and indignation and vengeance of God to be poured out on us because of our iniquity, our immorality. And uh, God was saying here to Judah, He was saying, "You are, you have turned your back on me. You have worshipped idols. You have done wrong, and now my anger is being poured out on you." God's anger toward Judah. Number two, notice the enemy's aggressions. Against Judah. Now, uh, Isaiah here in the next handful of verses is going to, uh, in, in a cloaked way, in a veiled way, lay out three different sieges that are uh, will, will come against uh, Israel. And one is yet to come. Two have already happened. And so verse 5 we find one. Verse 6 we find another. And verses 7 and 8 we find the third. Let's look at these quickly here. Notice letter A, Assyria dismantled. Assyria Dismantled. Now, I had a hard time understanding verse 5. And then I opened up a commentary and uh, gave me great insight on verse 5. And I got excited. I, I leaped up from my desk when I realized I understood verse 5. And, and I wanted to just do a, come in here and just do a lap around the auditorium. That's how happy I was. And I, 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 can, I, can, I contained myself. Amen. But I was excited. Look at verse number 5 with me. And we see God talking about Assyria. It says, Moreover, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust. And the multitude of the mighty ones, or the terrible ones, shall be as chaff that passeth away. Look here. Yea, it shall be at an instant suddenly. So these these aggressors, the Assyrians, um, uh, and here's how we know it's Assyria, they would be dealt with suddenly. They'd be wiped out suddenly. Take your Bible over to 2 Kings chapter 19. Let me show you why I believe verse 5 is talking about the Assyrian army. While we're finding our way over there, uh, we know that Assyria marched in and conquered the ten northern tribes and carried them away never uh, to be again. They still have not come back around and are still scattered all over the globe. But then after they finished those ten northern tribes, by the way, God did not want Assyria to pursue anything other than those ten northern tribes. And the ten northern tribes pushed through, uh, 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 rather Assyria pushed through the ten northern tribes and went beyond what God's plan was, went beyond God's will, and began to try to conquer Judah. And sure enough, they marched through and they 
conquered all of the southern kingdom of Judah. They got to the gates of Jerusalem and uh, they were ready to take that over. And God stepped in and intervened and stopped their overreach. Look at verse 35 and we're going to see how that God does away with them as chaff. It was instant. It was sudden. Verse 35. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians and a hundred fourscore and eighty and five or 185,000. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisrosh, uh, his god, that uh, Adrimelech and uh, Sherezer, his sons, smote him with the sword, and they escaped in the land of Armenia. And Esar uh, uh, Hadon, his son, reigned in his stead. A hundred and eighty-five thousand soldiers sitting on the outskirts of Jerusalem, ready to besiege it, ready to destroy it, this this aggressor against Judah, and uh, they're blown away as the chaff. They're dealt with instantly. They're dealt with suddenly. In one night, the angel of the Lord goes in, and he kills an army of 185,000 soldiers. That is amazing. We call that divine intervention. I, like many of you, have been watching intently. I've upped my five minutes of news a day a little bit this week. Amen? I really do watch about five minutes of news a day on average. And some days I won't watch any. Other days I'll watch 15 to 20 minutes. I don't watch much news. I stay away from the news. I don't want to be politically charged when I get up here. And so the way I stay away from being politically charged, I just don't watch the news. But with the war going on in Ukraine, I've been watching a little bit more news and just trying to get a an understanding of what's going on over there. And I've seen, like you all, the 40-mile convoy of Russian, uh, a Russian, uh, um, the Russian, Russian convoy coming down. And I'm just imagining that in the middle of the night, the angel Lord goes in and the next day you come out and all those soldiers are dead. Can you imagine the, the, the headlines that would make? Can you imagine the shock the world would be in that all of a sudden all these people had a heart attack all at the same time? Now listen, we're not talking about a 40-mile convoy. We're talking about 185,000 soldiers in one night. The angel of the Lord went through and slew all of them. And all of a sudden, there was no enemy outside the gate ready to destroy Jerusalem. And uh, God stepped in and did something that was miraculous. The enemy's aggression against Judah, Isaiah predicted it, and sure enough it came true. Letter A, Assyria dismantled. Letter B, Babylonian dominance. Babylonian dominance. Go back to verse number 6, Isaiah chapter 29, and look, at, look with me at verse number 6. Thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder. And with earthquake, and great noise, with storm and tempest. Look here. And the flame of devouring fire. Verse 5 is talking about the Assyrians, I believe. Verse 6, I believe, to be talking about the Babylonians that did not come in and get destroyed. In fact, Assyria would would, would die. The 185,000 soldiers would die. The, the enemy would be neutralized. And then God would give Israel yet another chance under Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, for the most part, would serve the Lord and be a good king. But right behind Hezekiah, a king or two later, they would go back to being wicked. And so God prepared the Babylonians to come in. And this time, he was done with them. 490 years, they had neglected to give the land its rest. 
490 years. They had not given the earth its Sabbath rest. And so God said, 70 years I'm going to give the land its rest back. 70 years you're going to sit in captivity by Babylon. So Babylon came in and destroyed. Turn over to Daniel chapter number 1. And I just want to back up what I'm telling you with Scripture. I want you to see it with your own two eyes that what Isaiah predicted did indeed come true. Daniel chapter 1, and we're just going to get a little glimpse at this. Uh, There are other passages of Scripture uh, that tell us exactly that what Isaiah predicted did come true. Daniel chapter 1, look with me at the first couple of verses here, uh, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried in the land of Shinar to the house of God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of, the, uh, of his God. If you read down several verses, you'll find that he burned down Jerusalem. He burned down their temple. He laid it flat. Now, with that in mind, go back to verse number 6 of Isaiah chapter 29. The very end says, In the flame of devouring fire. Jerusalem was burned down. In fact, when you get to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah would go in amongst the rubble and he would rebuild back on top of uh, uh, the old rock. And again, what's he doing? He's creating another layer because the altar of God, God had sacrificed many of the people there. They had died. We looked at that in point one, the anger of God. But Babylonian dominance, sure enough, Assyria was dismantled. Babylon, not so much. There was Babylonian dominance. And the prophecy of Isaiah came true, letter C. Letter C, we see an aggressor that's yet uh, to happen against Israel, uh, but will during the tribulation, letter C, we see the Antichrist destroyed. The Antichrist destroyed. Look at verse number 7, Isaiah 29, and I believe we see yet a third aggressor, a third aggressor against Israel. Verse 7 and 8, the Bible says, "...in the multitude of all the nations that fight..." Notice there, all the nations, all the nations... We know that under the Antichrist, all the nations will rise up and fight uh, uh, corporately, militarily, fight against Israel, uh, fight against the Jews. And I believe this will be done in the Valley of Megiddo, known as the Battle of Armageddon. All the nations that fight against Ariel, even all that fight against her and her munition, and that distress her shall be as a dream of a night vision. Look at verse 8. It shall even be as when an hungry man dreameth, And behold, he eateth, but he awaketh and his soul is empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreameth, and behold, he drinketh, but he awaketh and behold, he is faint, and his soul hath appetite, so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. They will fight for the last three and a half years of the tribulation. They will fight and fight and fight and fight. They will attack and attack and attack, being led by no one other than Satan himself, the Antichrist being the point man, but Satan working in the background. And the Jews will be fought uh, against and attacked and persecuted and then you'll have all of it come to a pinnacle at the valley of or the valley of Megiddo the the battle of Armageddon there on that battlefield and turn over to Zechariah chapter number 14 and we'll see that Jesus Christ comes down and he fights for Israel when their back is against the wall it seems as though this aggressor will take them out God will step in and God will win the battle for the Jews look at verse number 1 Zechariah chapter 14 the Bible says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. 
For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem. This is, this is a fulfillment of what we see back in verses 7 and 8 of, of, of Isaiah 29. That all the nations, all the nations, uh, all the nations uh, against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken and the house rifled and the woman, women ravished. And half the city shall go forth into captivity and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Uh, then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Jesus Christ will step in against the nations, against the aggressors of, of Jerusalem. He will fight. He will win. He will usher in the millennial kingdom by taking out the Antichrist. The Antichrist bound, thrown into hell for a thousand years. The Antichrist destroyed. And so, so far Isaiah has laid out for us the rebukes of Israel. He's talked about the anger poured out against Judah, Ariel as a lion, Ariel, Ariel meaning an altar, and, and, and we see the, the layered cake that Jerusalem now is, and, and how they have been an altar over and over and over again as God has poured out His wrath against His own people because of their, 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 their obstinance, their stubbornness, their unwillingness to follow uh, their God. And then we've seen the aggressors. We saw Assyria dismantled and Babylonian dominance and the Antichrist destroyed. Now let's turn our attention to point number three and let's see why God rebuked Jerusalem. What did Jerusalem do? What did the Jews do to bring God's wrath on them? Well, God does not just say the wrath is coming and not give the reason. God's going to lay out for us exactly why he punished Israel. And, and I believe that this is where we can find great application to our day-to-day -day life. Number three, notice Judah's attitude toward God. Judah's attitude toward God. Why were there so many aggressors? Uh, why was God's anger poured out? Well, it really comes down to Judah had a, a bad attitude toward their God. And I just want to pause here and, and appeal to all of you parents in the room. And appeal to all of you here that have poured yourself in to the younger generation, even if you're not a parent. God, way, way back in Genesis 12, he chose Abraham. And you know what God did for Abraham? He gave him and Sarah a, a baby in their old age. And God adopted that family, uh, Isaac and, and, and Jacob and Jacob's 12 boys. He adopted that family as his own. And the, uh, the, the 12 children of Jacob, who was later named Israel, the 12 children of Israel and all of their descendants became the people of God. And God had a very special relationship with Israel. And it wasn't that God didn't love the Gentiles. God's always loved the Gentiles and made provision for Gentiles to be saved all throughout Scripture. But God had a special relationship with uh, Israel and with uh, Israel's children, the Jews, and, 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 and loved them and took care of them and looked after them and, 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 and was extra good to them. And all that God did for Israel, Israel just turned its back on God. And Israel was rebellious toward God. And if you're here today and you're a parent and, and you've loved on your children and you've seen your children rebel and go another direction, or you could imagine your children rebelling and going another the direction, you have a good idea of how God felt. You have a good idea how frustrated God was. You have a good idea that this didn't just happen once for a few years in a, a rebellious teenage uh, uh, state. No, this had gone on for thousands of years. This was God punishing and restoring and punishing and restoring and 
punishing and restoring, and now God's reached His end. God's getting ready to send in the Babylonians here shortly in Isaiah 29. And God says through His prophet Isaiah, I want to make it clear to you why it is that I'm going to harshly punish you. Letter A, notice, you are spiritually asleep. He says you are spiritually asleep. Look at verse 9. We're going to read down through verse 12. It says, stay yourselves and wonder. Cry ye out and cry. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep. Deep sleep. They're spiritually asleep. Uh, And hath closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers. The seers hath he covered. And that word seer is just another word for prophet. All the vision of all is come unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which has been delivered to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned or ignorant, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned or I am illiterate. Spiritually asleep. In verses 9 and 10, I see dullness. Look back at verse 9 and 10, and we see they're just spiritually dull. Uh, Look back at verse 9 and 10 and keep that dullness idea in mind. Uh, Stay yourselves and wander. Cry ye out and cry. They are drunken. The dullness from uh, being drunken, but not with wine. They stagger. They're dull. They stagger, but not with strong drink. Uh, They're dull. Look at verse 10. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep. You ever come out of a deep sleep and and had someone try to talk to you? You say, look, I just need a minute. I just need, I'm, I'm still waking up. That's many of you on Sunday evenings when you come in from church after your Sunday afternoon nap, right? You come in and how many of you just are sitting there and you go, I, I, I want to sing, Pastor, but I need the first one just to kind of wake up and then I'll, I'll join in and start singing, right? And uh, You're kind of wiping the sleepies out of yours. I don't know about you, but when I take an afternoon nap, I am worthless the rest of the day. How many of you are like me on that? You're just worthless the rest of the day. I don't take Sunday afternoon naps on purpose. Sometimes I'll fall asleep, you know, when I'm sitting on the couch or something. But I try not to because if I get up here and preach after taking a nap, it it would just be a waste of time. I am worthless after a nap usually, and uh, they they are dull. They're they're the uh, the Bible says here they're spiritually asleep. Look back at verse ten. Notice their dullness. Their dullness after many years of being drunken on their pride and hath closed. Your eyes, the prophets, and your rulers, the seers, hath he covered. And you get the idea here that these people, they're, they're so spiritually dull, uh, they have no idea what's going on. And many uh, critics of God, many critics of the Bible, point to verses like this one and others like it and say, well, if God loved his people, why would he cause them to be sleepy? If God loved his people, uh, why would he... Cover their eyes. And please, well, turn over to John 9. I'm going to let the Word of God refute the Word of God or, or defend itself. John chapter 9. Turn over there, and uh, I think we'll see through this passage a, a good explanation on how this works. By the way, it isn't just Jews that are spiritually asleep. Many Christians today are spiritually asleep. Look at John 9, and look at verse 39, and we'll, we'll read verse 39 and 40. And the Bible says, And Jesus said, For judgment... I am come into this world that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. Now let's just stop, let that settle in. I'm going to read verse 40 in a moment. Those that see are going to be made blind, 
And those that can't see will be able to see. And Jesus loved to talk in riddles. How many of you ever read through the gospel and thought, Jesus just talks in this, these, these, these riddles that seem head-scratching, right? They're, they're abstract almost. Look at verse 40. Verse 40. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see. Therefore your sin remaineth. Now, what's the, uh, what's the answer to the riddle here? The answer to the riddle is pride and humility. Those that are proud, they think they see things straight. And God says... You all that have the law and have studied the law and know the law and are puffed up in your knowledge, truth is smacking you in the face and you're too blind to see it because you're blinded by your own pride. But then you have someone who's more simple-minded and, and humble in heart and really can't see. And when the truth comes along, all of a sudden the scales fall off their eyes and they can see. You know, the Pharisees always rejected Jesus. But those who walked around in spiritual blindness, who did not understand the law, when Jesus came around, all of a sudden he connected to the common man. And they were able to see. They were able to see that Jesus was their Messiah when those who were religiously learned were blind to that very fact. Did God put a veil or scales over the eyes of the Pharisees or over the eyes of the Jews here uh, in Isaiah uh, 29? No. No. What put the veil over these folks' eyes was their own pride. They were spiritually asleep. Spiritually asleep. I've known many, many, many people, and I've been guilty of this at points in my life, but I've known many, many, many people who know a whole lot of Bible, but they can't see very clearly spiritually. They, they are lost. They are lost in being able to truly understand what God is trying to teach them and show them spiritually asleep. Not only was there dullness, but look back at verse 11 and 12 of Isaiah 29. I also see there was disinterest. Verse 11 and 12, In the vision of all um, uh, is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed. Sealed shut which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. In both cases, verse 11 and 12, uh, it isn't that the book couldn't be read. It was that there was no real interest in reading it, so excuses were found. There are a lot of people who look at the book of Revelation and say, It cannot be understood. It's a book that is sealed. And um, I'm going to tell you, you should not begin. If you're a new Christian, do not begin with the book of Revelation. All right? The book of Revelation is a hard book to understand if it's the first book you're reading. Did you ever notice that God put Revelation at the end of the 66 books? Here's what I found. When you understand real well the first 65 books, the last one is really easy to understand. When you don't understand the first 65 books... That last one can seem like a book that is sealed. And uh, these folks were spiritually asleep because they did not want to put in the work to understand what God was teaching through the prophet Isaiah. 
And so instead of cracking open the prophecies that were against them and understanding them and amending their ways, they made excuses. Oh, the book is sealed. I can't understand it. Or, or I'm not uh, literate. I can't read it. I can't understand it. Now, Christian, I just want to say to you here on a practical note, uh, don't be dull and disinterested in the Bible. Don't be dull and disinterested in the Bible. God has given you a book. You know what I hear in 2022, and really I've heard it my whole lifetime, the Bible is just too hard to understand. Do you know, um, I, I heard of a, uh, a story about a, a, a drill instructor who had gotten a battalion of men to train and get ready for war, and, and um, he went to uh, his superior and he said, he said, sir, this batch of men, uh, this battalion of men, uh, they just can't seem to meet the standard of training. He said, can we bring the standard down to the men? And the superior looked at the drill instructor and he said, no, bring the men up to the standard. Because war is going to be hard and we don't want to send a bunch of soft uh, uh, marshmallows into war. Bring the men up to the standard. Don't bring the standard down to the men. And what I see with a lot of our Bible translations today is that we're trying to bring the standard down to the man because over time uh, we've gotten duller and duller and duller and more disinterested in spiritual things. And we don't need to bring the standard down to the man. You need to bring yourself up to the standard of God's Word. Take off the, the sleeping mask. Take off the disinterest. Take off the laziness and put in the work and understand your Bible and, and read it and study it and get study helps and, and sit under sound preaching and make sure that you're not spiritually asleep. Letter B, we see uh, God says another attitude they had is they were spiritually aloof. Spiritually aloof. Look at verse 13 and 14. That just simply means they just didn't care. Verse 13 and 14. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as his people draw near me with their mouth. We looked at this verse when we preached on worship a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning. Wherefore as, uh, as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me. And their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Therefore, behold, I will sing, uh, I will proceed to do, to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. He says here, you are spiritually aloof. Your, your lips go through the process of praise, but there is no heart of worship behind your praise. What's he saying here? He's saying you have religion. The temple's full. Sacrifices are being offered. You're going through the religious rituals, but your heart isn't there. Turn over to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Look at me at verse number 1. Mark. Book of Mark. Quickly. We're running out of time here. Mark chapter 7. Look at verse number 1. I'm going to begin reading. Then came together unto him the Pharisees, and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of the disciples eat bread with, uh, with defiled, uh, that is to say, with unwashed, unwashing 
hands, they found fault. My wife would have found fault too. Amen. Uh, she wants us to wash her hands before we eat. Amen. Verse 3. For the Phari- I'm not calling my wife a Pharisee, by the way. Verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And there really is the key. This wasn't about sanitary, uh, being sanitary. This was about holding to the tradition of the elders. This was about holding to a religious Custom, verse 4, and when they came from the market, except they wash, they eat not, and many other things there be, which they have received hold as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, asked Jesus, why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Look at Jesus' response. Why aren't your disciples following the tradition of the elders? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. Can you understand why the Pharisees didn't like Jesus? He just called them hypocrites to their face. I think if I walked up to you and called you a hypocrite, you probably wouldn't like me very much either. Uh, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me teaching for doctrine the commandments of men, for laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like things ye do. You know, he's saying to them, he was saying, when it comes to what really matters, you are aloof. You don't care. You care about holding to a set of religious rituals, religious uh, traditions, You don't care about the laws of God. You care about the laws of men. Back in Isaiah 29, we find people going through the rituals of saying the right things. But Isaiah says, God sees past your words. He looks at your heart. And he says, your attitude, your heart is far from me. You're spiritually aloof. You just really don't care. Is it possible in an independent Baptist church in 2022 to have people who do the right things outwardly, but their heart is far from God? Is it possible that three times a week we could come in and and, and take up our space in in a pew or a chair and go through the motions of being a good Christian, but have a heart that's far from God? I think it's possible and 2022 in an independent Baptist church to be guilty of this, to be spiritually aloof. How many of you be honest enough to say that whether or not you're there now, at some point in your Christian life, you've just simply gone through the motions and your heart's not been where it should have been? How many of you can say that? I can. I can. I've been there more than once. Boy, I don't want to be there right now. I don't want this to be true about me. Spiritually asleep, spiritually aloof. We're going to cover letter C in the rest of the message next week. We're going to look at the last attitude that God saw here, and it is the strongest indictment of them all. In fact, God levels the second woe of the chapter on this third uh, attitude as God's rebuking Israel. So we'll finish the rebuke portion of the message next week, and then we'll look at the restoration portion as well. Let's stand together to be dismissed with a word of prayer, to be sent forth with a word of prayer. I hope that you will take the Bible study to heart. And let's make sure that we're not asleep at the wheel spiritually. Let's make sure uh, that we're not spiritually aloof, that we're walking with God. I'm glad you were all here tonight. Uh, Let's go forth and let's be genuine.